The following is a message by Dr. Dennis Johnson from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Continue our reflection today on uh, the book of Acts in the first chapter. Uh, we are uh, mining the treasures of Acts 1 8 in particular uh, in the last several of our meditations uh, on Acts. We've thought about the coming of the Spirit in his purity and in his power, as Jesus promised it, it soon to take place at the time uh, when he appears to his apostles uh, just at the time of his ascension. Uh, we thought last, last time we were thinking about Acts, about the role of the church as his witnesses, uh, the apostles as eyewitness to the resurrection, uh, eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and the church extending that witness to the end of the age, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And now we hear again one more promise in Acts 1.8. We're going to begin at verse 6 again to hear God's word and uh, hear that dimension, the, the scope of the witness to the great work of Christ. Acts chapter 1 verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is God's word. Let us ask his spirit to open our hearts and minds to it. Father, we pray that you will open our eyes to see the glory of Jesus in this text, to see especially the dimensions of his kingdom uh, spanning around the globe, reaching to the very last part of the earth, uh, that we might respond with thankfulness that it has reached even to us, and also that we might joyfully take up the calling that you've given to each of us as members of your church to participate in that global expansion of Christ's kingdom of grace among all the peoples of the world, that your light might shine upon all the nations and draw your people from all the peoples of the world as the redeemed children of God, even at the very ends of the earth. So Father, even in these brief moments that we have together to reflect on your word, Lift our eyes to Jesus who rules and reigns at your right hand and who extends his rule in the power of his spirit and the truth of his gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the last six words of Acts 1-8, actually four in Greek, heos eskatu teskes, just four in Greek, to the last part of the earth, are... Words that speak amazing encouragement to us and daunting challenge to us today, even at the distance of 2,000 years and uh, roughly 7,600 miles as the crow flies. I I checked it on Google uh, from uh, Jerusalem to San Diego County. Um, A long way, both in time and in distance. Um, Great encouragement, great challenge. 
Jesus closed this promise that the Spirit would soon descend and that because of the power that the Spirit himself would bring, that his apostles and then the church extending their witness would continue to be witnesses, not only in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, the uh, historic place that God had promised to dwell among his people, that he had promised to give to the biological descendants of Abraham, not only there, but even to the very end of the earth. And Jesus spoke that promise as a corrective to the assumptions that lay behind his apostles' question in verse 6. Lord, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, at the distance that we stand from that moment, it's, I think, easy for us to dismiss their question and the concerns behind it as perhaps nothing more than an expression of ethnocentric tunnel vision. After all, most of us are Gentiles, and it may seem to us rather narrow-minded that Jesus' closest followers were fixated on the timing when God would bring Israel out from under the heel of the Roman Empire and, and maybe even restore Israel to a point of international dominance as in the glory days of David and and Solomon. Um, Now, in fact, their perspective on the dimensions and the depths of God's kingdom did need to be corrected. It needed to be expanded, just as their expectations about the power that would extend the kingdom needed to be corrected with Jesus' reference to the Holy Spirit's coming to transform hearts and lives. Yet their hope for Israel's rescue was not just a matter of ethnic pride. It wasn't just a kind of a reaction uh, against the fact that now they were on sort of low people on the totem pole in the pecking order of the Roman Empire. Uh, There was more to it than that. Uh, In fact, in Luke's Gospel, his first volume in the Nativity narratives, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Luke records with evident approval, which means God the Spirit approves the words of Mary, who would be the mother of the Messiah when she celebrates the Lord because he has, as she says, helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Luke and the Holy Spirit record with approval the words of Zechariah, the father of John the forerunner, when Zechariah blesses the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And of course Luke goes on then in the second chapter after the birth of Jesus the Messiah when he's presented in the temple Uh, to record the fact that there is a pious widow there by the name of Anna who speaks of this newborn, this baby, uh, to all who were awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. So there's good precedent for the apostles to be asking, is this the time when you're going to deliver Israel from that place of subjection and suffering? Our experience of living by and large, I think, in churches overflowing with Gentiles who are biologically not connected to Abraham, and maybe even our experience in a culture that celebrates 
diversity above everything that uh, has one of its prime, premier values to be inclusive and non-judgmental and tolerant, I think these things may make it hard for us to really resonate with what these folks are saying, with, with their deep sense that the God of the universe had chosen to fix his love on a particular family, on a particular nation, on a particular people. But it's obvious that they are convinced of that, aren't they? Mary and Zechariah and Anna and now the apostles really believe that the creator of the universe takes a special interest in Abraham and his children. And they had learned that from the Bible. The ancient scriptures of Israel had shown them that the God of all the earth has a right to be choosy, has the right to select those to whom he will show his mercy. That he had the right to say to Abraham thousands of years before, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. He had the right to say to Israel at Mount Sinai, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the nations, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He had the right to say to Israel much later through the prophet Amos, you only have I known of all the families on the earth. They were right to anticipate that God could sovereignly choose, could sovereignly elect, and that he would be faithful to the promises that he had made to rescue and relieve the people whom he had chosen to set his love upon. What they hadn't fully grasped, it seems, was the complete extent of the people whom God chose in his grace. They hadn't fully digested the whole implications of God's covenant with Abraham, because God not only said to Abraham, I will bless you, he also said, I will make you a blessing. In fact, a couple chapters later, we'll hear Peter has gotten the point by now, at least beginning to get the point, in Acts chapter 3, when Peter says that God made the promise to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. There's a dimension there bigger than what apparently Peter and the others had seen on this day that is recorded here in Acts chapter 1. They're still focused on the people that are like them, that share their DNA, traced back to Abraham, that share their food, that share their culture, that share their customs, that share their language. They're still focused on that. So Jesus, very gently but very firmly, widens their horizons with those last six words, four in Greek, to the end of the earth, to the end of the earth. He's alluding to an ancient prophecy that God gave through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 49. When you read those words in the context of Isaiah 49 verses 1 through 6, you really begin to see that the history that Isaiah is tracking in this description of a dialogue between the faithful servant of the Lord and the Lord himself is really the history of Jesus. 
The servant says, the Lord said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He now says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Four words in Greek, Septuagint, heos eskatutes geis, to the end of the earth. It really is the history of Jesus, isn't it? I mean, just a few weeks earlier, hadn't two of them on the road to Emmaus explained to the stranger, whom they didn't recognize, although we're told that it's Jesus, hadn't they explained to him that their hopes had been dashed? We thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, but now, well, now it really does look as if he had spent his labor in vain and his strength for nothing in vanity. He was executed, dead. And though they had heard reports of reports that he was alive from the dead, it doesn't seem that they quite believed it yet. But of course, through many convincing proofs, Jesus had demonstrated that he had conquered death. So now their hopes had come back to life, but still, in effect, as God said through Isaiah, still their hopes were too small. They were looking for too light a thing, too easy a task for the servant to perform, just to restore Israel and Jacob, just to bring them back, just to bring them back into fellowship with God, into life before God. No, it's, it's much, much bigger than that. Now that God has glorified his servant in resurrection, now the ever-living Messiah is going to be sent in the preaching of the gospel, in the power of the Spirit, to the ends of the earth. So in Acts 3, when Peter quotes Genesis 22, in your offspring all the families of the earth will be blessed, Peter immediately follows up by saying, when God raised his servant, he sent him to you first to turn each of you from your wicked ways. And that first, although Peter maybe didn't glimpse all that was implied in that, but it was there, that first means that God would send his servant to others beyond Israel The light of God's redeeming grace would shine first on Israel, but then outward from Israel to all the nations, to those living at the ends of the earth, even 7,600 miles away in San Diego County, even that far. Now that theme had also been sounded in Luke's first volume. In fact, in the birth narratives. Because... uh, We read that when Jesus was presented at the temple, not only that aged widow, pious widow, prayerful widow Anna saw him, but another aged individual, Simeon, a prophet, saw him, took the baby in his arms and praised God. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the gentiles and for glory to your people israel light to the gentiles what text is simeon thinking of isaiah 49 a light to the gentiles 
And when that child, whom Simeon held, several decades later, grew to manhood and received his messianic anointing by the Spirit and then returned home to Nazareth, to his hometown synagogue, and quoted from, read from, a song in Isaiah about the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 61. He then went on to offend all the neighbors who had watched him grow up by announcing and reminding them that in ancient times God had sent his prophets to a starving widow in Zarephath of Sidon, in pagan territory, and sent his prophets to bring healing to a leper from Syria, pagan power. There were plenty of closer-to-home widows and lepers in Israel, Jesus said, but God sent his grace out to the nations to bring light to the ends of the earth. And now in the fullness of time, in the resurrection of Christ, his labor was not in vain. His strength was not spent for nothing. It not only restores Israelites and brings them to faith in the promised Messiah, but it shines light to the ends of the earth. So in Acts 10, Peter will be sent to the home of a Roman centurion, an army officer, one who is commanding troops that are keeping Israel in subjection to the mighty power of Rome. But this army officer is hungry to know the true and living God. And so when Peter enters Cornelius' house, he begins by talking about the word that God sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. But then abruptly in mid-sentence, Acts 10.36, Jesus Christ, suddenly Peter inserts, This one is Lord of all, not just Israel, of all. Even to the officers in Romans' occupation forces. And Peter promises that to Jesus all the prophets bear witness that everyone, yes, everyone, yes, Cornelius, who hungers to know the living God, to whom God is giving faith in the promises, everyone, who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Six small English words, four in Greek, right? But against the backdrop of God's covenant with Abraham and God's commission to his servant in Isaiah, and the poetry in the nativity narratives in Luke's gospel, and Jesus' own words and deeds, What encouragement, what challenge they bring to us. Encouragement because here we sit at the end of the earth from Jerusalem, gathered not just from Abraham's physical descendants, but from a hodgepodge of peoples and races. And God's light has shone into our hearts, carried by the power of God's spirit. And he's drawn us into communion, into fellowship, into the family of God. By this amazing grace, how thankful we can be for Jesus' corrective to his disciples' too small vision of the kingdom of God. And there's challenge here too. We are at earth's ends, to be sure, but the advance of Christ's kingdom through the heralding of the gospel has not been completed. For so many of us, our family trees reach back maybe several generations of believers. But eventually, I suspect for all of us, it certainly is true for me, my roots come from Sweden, and once Swedes were cannibals, 
For all of us, I suspect, in one way, shape, or form, even those who go back to Abraham, Abraham once lived in Ur the Chaldees, always back in the background, there are skeletons in our closet, back into the darkness of pagan past. But God has called us to be rejoicing that the word has reached us and enlisted us in the advance of the gospel to those other ends of the earth where it has not yet reached. I have in my Bible here a bookmark. Turns out it's marking, no, it's intentional, Isaiah 49. I'm sure you can't see it very clearly. Uh, About the top third of it has some quotation marks at the very top corner and then later on and it's blank. Underneath it, it says, this is John 3.16 in 3,000 languages of the world. You hear it? No. In 3,000 languages, John 3.16 has not yet been heard, spoken. One example of the challenge before us. If the glorified servant's agenda, the risen Messiah's royal purpose is to shine the light of God's salvation on every ethnic group that belongs to the human family at the farthest corner of the globe. The question that really confronts each of us, and the Lord may answer it in different ways for different ones of us, but the question that confronts each of us is, what is my role in Christ's global mission to shine the light on the nations at the end of the earth? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your servant did not spend his strength in vain and for nothing, but that by his suffering and death, he redeemed for you a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue on the face of the earth, that he is now risen and ruling and radiating the light of the knowledge of God through the preaching of the gospel, through the advance of his kingdom in the power of the spirit, in this almighty word of his death and his resurrection. Father, even as this week our minds are full of research and writing and deadlines and pressures, still lift our hearts to see the purpose for which we are studying, that we might know you better but also that as you open doors for us, we might seek the ways to make you known among the peoples of the world, even to the end of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2011, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.